And now another episode of Mind Escape with Michael and Maurice. Take it away, Michael. All right, folks. Welcome back to Mike and Maurice's Mind Escape. Uh, we have ep- episode number 60 today. Um, check us out at MikeAndMauriceMindEscape.com and Patreon.com slash MikeAndMaurice. Uh, our guest today is uh, an author of a new book called Prehistory Decoded. Uh, I present to you, Mr. Martin Sweatman. Hi. Hey, how are you? Yeah, I'm very well. You? Doing good, doing good. Good, Excellent. good. Um, <clears throat> so why don't you give us a little bit of background about um, how you got into this and, and where it all started? Well, I've generally been interested in you know, prehistory, ancient archaeology, that kind of thing. I mean, lots of people are. And particularly Gebekli Tepe, um, when it was first made public in about, uh, I think it was 19, that was discovered in 1994, but it wasn't made public till about 2004. So from then onwards, um, I was interested in Gebekli Tepe. I was, you know, keeping up with the the research literature and any other, anything else that um, was coming out. And then, um, is it 2015? Graham Hancock's book, uh, Magicians of the Gods, came out. So I had a look at that, and the particularly the part about um, Pillar 43, the Vulture Stone, as it's known, at Gebekli Tepe. Uh, it really um, caught my attention and. Uh, I found that um, what Graham and Paul Burley had started in Magicians of the Gods uh, actually went a lot, lot deeper so I could continue. Um, they basically provided the, the key, uh, and from then I could uh, continue decoding all the way back to about 40,000 BC. So, yeah, it was really, I'd been interested in Gebekli Tepe, but it wasn't until I read Graham's book that uh, it all fell into place. Yeah, uh, yeah, both Fingerprints and Magicians are both great books, but uh, as you speak, Gobekli's uh, a little bit newer of a site. Um, and it, it's interesting, didn't the University of Chicago discover it in like the 1960s, but they thought it was a lot earlier or, some, or a lot um, closer to modern time than, than it actually was, so they just left it alone, and then uh, there was a, a somehow... Didn't it was a farmer that tripped over it or something like that, or saw it and decided, hey, there's something serious going on under here? Yeah, that's how I understand the story as well. So, um, as far as I know, there was a, a survey performed by a couple of universities, and they came across what they thought was an Iron Age cemetery. So, basically, what they'd, what they'd uncovered there was the top of one of the pillars just poking above the ground. Um, but they left it alone, thinking it was, like you say, a more modern construction. Uh, but it wasn't until um, Klaus Schmidt, who, who went back to the site, you know, he, he read the report and he went back to the site because uh, he had a good he had a good idea that this was actually much more ancient than the report said. Uh, so he went back to the site and yeah, he he discovered uh, this amazing, probably I would say now the, the most important archaeological site in the world. Yeah. He he's a interesting guy. Actually, I was watching his TED talk on Gobekli last night. I was shocked; it only had ninety six thousand views, and I see way way dumber of topics on TED Talk that have like millions of views. So yeah, well, it's, you it's, know, you know the public, my man. <laughs> it's interesting how it works that way. Um, yeah. But why don't you, uh, so? As far as your research goes, 
Um, what was your background in this? Do you have any sort of formal background or was it just a passion project? Yeah, I have no background in this, you know, just a, a general interest. That's all. Um, for, I was very fortunate when I was, when I first came across this, uh, having read Graham's book, um, I was, um, I was teaching some, uh, undergraduate students and one of my, um, helpers, if you like, who in the, in the, in the teaching in the class was, um, a PhD student, not my PhD student, someone else's PhD student, named Demetrius Sikritsis. And uh, he happened to be, you know, um, a gen, you know, an experienced archaeoastronomer. So actually everything I've learned, I've learned from him about how to, how to actually sort of locate equinoxes and solstices and uh, all this kind of thing. So I was talking to Demetrius about this, um, about this idea that I'd had after re reading Graham's book. And completely coincidental. I had no idea that he was into this kind of thing as well. Um, but so, yeah, we put our heads together and we, we, you know, we went a lot further and, uh, eventually after probably a month or so, a month uh, of, of trying to figure things out, we, um, well, we then wrote this paper, which, uh, got quite well known our Fox paper. So, um, decoding Gebekli Tepe with archaeoastronomy. What did the Fox say? So, uh, that that was our paper, and uh, yeah, I, I really needed uh, Demetrius's help to to do that. Yeah, the, the, you know, I think you know when good minds can come together. Obviously, it's you know it's a little bit better from a collaborative standpoint. You get you bounce ideas off each other, and um, it seems like there's a, a lot of people out there that have small groups that do this kind of stuff, and obviously scientific teams and, and stuff like that. But um, in terms of your book, um, how does all this play into the message that you, you believe the these ancient builders were trying to send, if you will? Yeah, so the, um, Gebekli Tepe is, if you like, the start of this journey of discovery. So it's it's um, I compare Gebekli Tepe to the Rosetta Stone. You know, it, it's uh, it's like a primer or or the key, uh, and once you have decoded this ancient zodiac uh, you can then go and try it out on different sites and you find or we, we found later that it worked um so this is now work with alistair coombs um so another sort of surreptitious and uh, serendipitous uh, um sort of collaboration um so we, we then found that we could apply this um scheme this zodiacal scheme to chattelhoyuk which is another ancient site in Turkey, not quite as old as Gebekli Tepe, but the same system applies there. Code uh, Lasco, you know, Lasco Cave, the um, Paleolithic sure. art. And having, having done, that's right, yeah. And having done that, it turns out that we could decode pretty much all of the animal symbols, or at least most of them, in these... Um, at least in the West, Western European Paleolithic art caves. In fact, going all the way back to um, what's thought to be the earliest known statue, it's about a foot tall. It's called the Lion Man of Holsteinstadl Cave from Germany. It's 40,000 years old. Uh, so that wow. Lion Man, we suspect, um, actually represents the constellation Cancer. And everything fits. And, and we've, all of this decoding, part of it is just kind of logical deduction. And the other part of our research is actually showing, or if you like, scientifically proving that we're correct by, by doing this uh, scientific process called hypothesis testing. So we, we test our hypothesis against 
a large data set and we find that basically it, it works all the time or just about all the time so, and with such good statistical um uh well the, basically the chance that our um predictions would work out is so small if you if it was if it was if it was wrong that um it essentially means that we have to be right from how old do they estimate that uh tepe is well yeah good question so the archaeologists have radiocarbon uh, dated some of the mortar from the wall of enclosure d so there are several enclosures that they've excavated um, probably the oldest one is enclosure D, and so the radiocarbon dating says that is ten thousand nine, sorry, nine thousand six hundred BC. Nine thousand six hundred BC. Now we, having decoded uh, the vulture stone, the date that's written on that is, we think, the date of the Younger Dryas impact, which is about uh, ten thousand nine hundred BC. So that's about thirteen hundred years earlier. Now that doesn't mean to say that that this, the um, the vulture stone or pillar forty three was built thirteen hundred years earlier. It just means that the date that's written on it is thirteen hundred years earlier than the radiocarbon date of the enclosure. Mm-hmm. So it could that pillar could have been constructed at any time between the actual Younger Dryas event and the construction of that stone wall at Quebec Tepe. It's a thirteen hundred year gap. We don't know where it fits into that timeline. So, what um, have you ever been to Gobekli Tepe? Have you done any trips there? <laughs> no, I'd I'd love to go. Uh, yeah, um, I probably will go soon. Um, maybe this this coming summer or something. But uh, yeah, I'd like to go all these sites that we've uh, decoded, like the, the 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 Paleolithic art in Europe as well. You know, it's all fascinating. Absolutely. I'd love to go there. Absolutely. Um, yeah. No, I mean, I'd love to check it out as well. I think the on my list, the uh, the Great Pyramid. And uh, Gobekli Tepe are probably high up on that list. Um, what uh, have you always been interested in? Uh, you know, ancient civilizations, and is, is this something that you've always been drawn into, or was it after reading a book, or you know, like you said, Graham Hancock, or, or what got you into this subject? I I'm uns- <laughs> I don't know anything specific. I've always been curious, I suppose you would say, about. Uh, what happened before known history, you know, prehistory, in other words. I've always been curious. Um, but my, my training's in physics, uh, particularly theoretical physics. So I'm also very curious about the solar system and uh, you know, uh, cometary impacts and that kind of business. So we'll, we'll have you back on and specifically talk about physics next time. But, uh, yeah, that's one of our other favorite topics on here, definitely. It's... Uh, all these mysteries of life that, you know, you, you know, even science can't explain, I guess that's what's right. so fascinating about them. Um, yeah. I mean, what, what got me interested in physics as a young lad was it was all of the um, bizarre things about physics, so quantum mechanics and relativity and so on. So that's what really brought me into physics. And it's that kind of curiosity of the, the strangeness actually of the universe, I suppose that, that kind of curiosity that also got me interested in these kind of prehistorical uh, events which don't seem to quite match up to the conventional story and uh yeah so it, it it's it's all very i've always been interested in it. it's remember arthur c Clarke? 
Yeah. So I, I was uh, I was one of the young lads that used to watch the Arthur C. Clarke programs uh, religiously. So all of these mysteries, uh, yeah, fascinating. For sure, for sure. Um, as far as the vulture stone goes, I think that's probably the most famous T-pillar out of them all in terms of, you know, getting, you know, when it's on movies and different, you know, YouTube videos and different things. Um, do you think it's because of the, first of all, there's, what's called the ancient handbags on the top. We've done an episode about that where we compared across the whole globe, all the different cultures have some form of these ancient handbags in their um, art. But um, underneath that, you've got the vulture uh, with a disc. Uh, there's actually a few different types of birds. Um, what do you think is going on in that image? Well, it's all astronomical. Um, we pretty much know that, you know, we, we out our, our statistics our scientific case is now so secure that uh, we pretty much know that this is all astronomical so the the animals are all representing different constellations um the disc is representing the sun in that particular case that's right on the uh, on the summer solstice um if you go up a bit i don't know if you can with that picture but uh, the handbags i can pull up a different picture yeah so the the vulture or eagle there, I mean, it's called the vulture pillar or a vulture stone, but um, in my view, it's not a vulture. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think it's probably, it's a, some kind of bird of prey. Uh, it'll, so that means either an eagle or, uh, or a hawk or something. And the reason I say that is because through later work, and if you look at my blog, I have um, a blog at martinsweatman.blogspot.com where I'm continuing this, this research been able to correlate the um, Gebekli Tepe with ancient Egypt. So the, the vulture there is actually Sagittarius, and, and so is Horus in Egypt, probably yeah, representing. So be a falcon instead, you think, huh? Yeah, it, it's a bird of prey of some description, falcon, hawk, or eagle, or something like that. So the handbags at the top, um, they are... Um, uh, it's, it's an image of the sun on the horizon, okay? So it's actually like a, a, a reverse image. It's, uh, so you've got three, so those three images at the top, those three little creatures, they are representing these, um, the other solstices and equinoxes. So the, the vulture, or sorry, I keep saying the vulture, the bird of prey or the eagle is the summer solstice. The other three are the, the two equinoxes and the winter solstice. Um, so if you go from the left, the one that's on the left there, the little sort of bird that's leaning over, that's representing Pisces. And uh, that's, um, I forget which one, I think that's the spring uh, equinox. The, the one in the middle, that's Gemini, and that's representing the winter solstice. And the one on the right is Virgo, so that's representing the, uh, I'm probably not the wrong way around, I think actually it's Virgo that's spring and Pisces is autumn equinox. So it's all astronomical. The, um, the other animal symbols, uh, the, so you, obviously you've got the scorpion is Scorpio. Mm -hmm. Underneath that, you've got this um, sort of another bird that's representing Libra. And just to the left of that, you've got a, what looks like a dog-like figure that's representing Lupus. And the strange figures to the right of the, of the, I keep saying vulture, of the bird probably represent Ophiuchus or a constellation in that region. Yeah, it's all astronomical. 
So then what does the disc represent? The sun? The disc there is a sun at the summer solstice. And it's it's showing the position of the sun relative to Sagittarius at the summer solstice. And that's how we can work out uh, the date. So it's it's about 10,950 BC to within a couple of hundred years. We can't be more accurate than that. Um, yeah, which, which matches very well with the Younger Dryas uh, event. Have you compared um, the T-pillars with, you know, this kind of stuff with other sites? Like I know there's been some sort of correlation I think Dr. Shock tries to make with um, um, the, uh, uh, whatchamacallit, the... Uh, um on Malta? well no no there there's the no the um i don't even know what i'm trying to say here but uh on easter island the bird you see the the so-called vulture is a very similar looking bird to the make make which is the bird cult of uh easter island right okay i i don't know how if they are connected uh, easter island Oh, I mean, I'm, I'm sure, sure it's that. not, but I, I just find it does, If I, you know, I could try and pull up a picture, but it does look very similar in terms of, yeah. um, but it could just be, that's how people drew birds back then too, you know, yeah. that could be. I mean, having said, can't be sure that it's connected, there might be a connection, um, you know, it's not something that we should just rule out, it's entirely possible, and uh, this is something that I talk about in my book, uh, and that Gebekli Tepe is just part, I think, of um, a much more ancient system of astro-mythology, so a combination of astronomy and mythology together, and it was all tied in with uh, comets and, and their destructive impacts. Right. Uh, and this, I think, is extremely ancient, going back perhaps more than 40,000 year, years. So given that time scale, and that sounds incredible, um, but the, the evidence is there. Um, so uh, it's a suggestion at the moment that there is this, this time scale to it. So that's, that's not proven, but the only thing that we've proven is the, in a scientific sense, is the matchup between the animal symbols and the constellations. But anyway, in my book, I talk about this idea of this ancient um, astro mythology going back 40,000 years. And if you think about that kind of time scale, then yeah, it's, it's possible um, that these places like um, you know, Easter Island and Gebekli Tepe and so on, there, there could be a link, but it's, it's, at the moment, it's very tenuous if there is any. Sure, sure. Um, it, but have you looked at any other sites that possibly, you know, have anything similar uh, in terms of the archaeoastronomy work? Um, or is this something that, you, like you said, I know your book's prehistory decoded as if, in, you know, this is some sort of, um, maybe since it was one of the earliest ones that, you know, they weren't as advanced with their symbolism or... Yeah, so I mean, I think that's what we find. That if you so that if you, the furthest back we've gone is with the European cave art. So, like I said, there was a statuette, the Lion Man of Holstein Stadel Cave, uh -huh. that's about forty thousand years old. Come forward in time slightly, and you've got basically all the rest of the the cave art in in Western Europe. And I'm just talking about Western Europe at the moment, but I suspect that this is the same for all of this cave art. It's all the same kind of system across the world, but just focusing on the European cave art, that's, that's what we've actually scientifically shown matches up. So that's, that goes back to about um, 36, 37,000 years ago in places uh, like Chauvet, 
coming forward a bit, uh, you've then got uh, caves like Lascaux, uh, Altamira. Again, it all matches up. Come forward a bit, you've got Gebekli Tepe. Come forward a bit to about 7,000, six and a half to 7,000 BC, you've got this other site called Chattelhoyuk, uh, which was very famous about, um, let's say, uh, 40, 40 or 50 years ago when it was first discovered. It's, so in, in archaeological circles, this is a well-known site, Chattelhoyuk. Um, and so what matches up there, that there are these, there are the four, there are four kinds of shrine at Chattelhoyuk that have been discovered by the archaeologists, and only four types of shrine. Uh, and these shrines uh, are correspond to different animal types. So you've got like a, um, a bull-worshipping shrine, a, a leopard-worshipping shrine, a bear-worshipping shrine, and a ram-worshipping shrine. And again, that matches up perfectly with our zodiacal hypothesis. So we can, based on our zodiac, we know what the, the date of this, this site is. So you've got a Chattelhoyuk. And then if you come further forward in time, we've, uh, as I explained on my blog, I've written a, a couple of articles. We can even, we can show now that, well, we suggest that the same system was in use in ancient Egypt. So this very ancient system, the Egyptians knew about it, pretty sure about that. Um, for example, if you take the god Amun, so he was uh, very ancient, he was one of the earliest gods in ancient mm -hmm. Egypt. And during the, during the Middle Kingdom, um, so he was kind of like the, the patron god of Thebes, which is Luxor. So it was called Thebes at the time. So during the mid Middle Kingdom, um, Amun was known to have basically like a, a duck. He was sort of represented by a duck. And I suggest the reason that is, is because that was the uh, autumn equinox at that time, was, was in Libra, which in our system is the duck. But then in the New Kingdom, Amun becomes really popular because uh, Thebes becomes at the centre of the whole of the Egyptian state. Uh, Amun becomes the sort of chief deity of everything. And his sort of animal sign or symbol switches to a ram, from duck to ram. And that, again, agrees completely with our zodiacal hypothesis. So basically what they've done there is switched between the Middle and New Kingdoms, they've switched from autumn to spring equinox, which is the switch from duck to ram. It fits perfectly. There are other clues as well. Um, the Scorpion King, for instance, is a, an ancient, um, well, was like a pre-dynastic uh, or supposedly a pre-dynastic king, but actually it, it corresponds simply to the autumn equinox, Scorpio, at the time that he's thought to be alive. So there are lots and lots of clues like this. Another one is uh, the Shemzu Hor. So these are the followers of Horus that are supposed to, supposed to have preceded dynastic Egypt. Uh, in the north of Egypt, there was this group of uh, leaders or, or warrior kings known as the Shemzu Hor, well, that corresponds again to Sagittarius. They were around at the time that Sagittarius was, I think, in that case, the spring equinox or the autumn equinox. So, you know, it all it all fits up. So it's pretty clear that uh, the ancient Egyptians knew about this zodiac, uh, this zodiac, and and, and a procession of the equinoxes. It's, it's there as well. And more recently, again, I haven't written this down yet, but um, the Sumer the Sumerians as well. It's thousand years. Right through to the Bronze Age, 
in Mesopotamia and ancient Egypt, it's the same system. It's so do you, that's why you think you see some of these um, uh, animal head gods, you think that uh, it correlates to the, um, the different equinoxes and, and different um, um, constellations? Yeah, so yeah, going back to your question, I kind of got diverted. No, no, that's that's good. I was just curious if that, that's what your hypothesis was. Yeah, so it starts off as animal symbols representing constellations at the solstices and equinoxes. So we see that in at Gebeke Tepe, at Chatelhoyuk, and further back in time at, in the cave art in, in Western Europe. But as we come forward in time to, uh, well, Egypt especially, uh, and Sumeria, we see that it, it their mythology becomes a lot more complex now. And so the, the constellations that were just animals have now become sort of animal deities with their own sort of personalities. Like, so you have Set, or Seth. Uh, so he's the sort of fox-headed um, god, god of chaos. Basically, that corresponds to Aquarius, I suspect, at uh, Gebekli Tepe. So um, I don't know if you remember... The, the, the tallest pillar at Gebeki Tepe in, in uh, Enclosure D, one of the two central pillars, has a fox on the mm -hmm. side. Yeah. So that fox is representing Aquarius. And I suspect that you know, 7,000 years later, that fox becomes the god Set in ancient Egypt. So that, there's this kind of, um, you expect all of these symbols to change with time. Um, but for, for 30,000 years, it seems they hardly did. Uh, but then as we get past the Younger Dryas event and into the Neolithic period, um, civilization begins and uh, things start to change much more quickly. So you, you now have a slightly different flavor of mythology in Egypt compared to uh, Mesopotamia, although fundamentally they are probably based on the same very ancient system. They're starting to diverge. They look slightly different now. Yeah, so the uh, I know we've had Laird Scranton on. I don't know if you're familiar with his work, but um, he actually showed me a picture. There's a, a Dogon have an altar carving, an altar stone that has like the almost the exact same fox, like a relief carving like that. Um, do you think that this Gobekli Tepe was like the center for a bunch of different civilizations, and and that's or what's your in terms of your your research and hypothesis on, on who were the people of Gobekli Tepe? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's a really great question. So um, I don't actually know much about um, Led Scranton's work. I've not really looked into it. I'm very interested to hear that they have uh, carvings of a fox. I'd have to look into that. That's yeah, he's got a book. I think it's called Point of Origin uh, right. about the specific topic. Yeah. Yeah, so basically my... My um, idea, if you like, my suggestion is that Gebekli Tepe was, well, there was this very widespread, I suspect, uh, mythology, astro-mythology before Gebekli Tepe. And then, this is what I suggested in my book anyway, and then there was this Younger Dryas impact event. And that kind of catalyzed a new kind of religion, a much more um, fearful, perhaps, religion that, that was able to get people to work together um, so after the event, I think there was some kind of existential crisis. You know, people were wondering, you know, why, why has this happened to us? Uh, what should we do? What can we do? And so it kind of bound people together, actually. And, and there was this kind of beginning of a, a new flavor of religion, which we see at Gebekli Tepe. 
And it's that that carried on. It's that that actually helped to stimulate or catalyze the beginning of civilization. So it was a really important event in the origin of civilization, I suggest. Um, yeah, it's pretty interesting. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing that uh, you know civilization as we know it owes something to this incredible uh, cosmic event. Um, and then, yeah, like you say, so then uh, it's it's the kind of centre of this uh, mythological, this new religion, and from that we have the origin of civilization, which includes agriculture as a as a byproduct. And then there's this explosion of population and migration out from that region. This is known in the archaeological world as the Neolithic Revolution. So there's this population explosion, uh, civilization begins, and this, this sort of farming combined with uh, this new religion spreads rapidly outwards. And, uh, but it doesn't stay the same. Wherever it goes, it, it subtly changes. So that's why we see differences in Mesopotamia compared to ancient Egypt. Perhaps the Dogon, I wouldn't be surprised if, if the Dogon was something was related to that somehow. It's not something I've looked into. But. Sure. I, well, I, mean, I, I, I know too there's awesome Australian or Aboriginal symbolism on some of the, the pillars. I don't know if you've looked into any of that. The time scale is so far apart. So it's, it's hard, it's very hard to, to see how there could be connections. But um, it's not something that could be ruled out. And like I say, it's. I suggest in, in the book, Prehistory Decoded, that there is this very ancient system that goes back maybe 40,000 years or more. So that kind of timescale would allow some kind of connection, perhaps, between somewhere very distant, like uh, you know, Australia and uh, Western Europe. So it's a possibility. It's, it's, um, it's intriguing, for sure. Do you think the people back then were more advanced than we give them credit? In the sense of uh, about the, the stars and... The yeah, I think definitely in terms of astronomy, uh, this is a bit of a revelation, I think, for academia. Um, so it's, and it, I mean, for quite a long time, we've known that um, people, say 20,000 years ago, we knew they were artistic because we see their paintings. Right. And we find evidence of sculpture and um, archaeologists have found very fine bone flutes uh, in these uh, European caves. So they were making music, right. making their instruments, great paintings. So they were clearly very artistic. And that in itself suggests or proves, you know, a sophisticated mind. Uh, so now with, now that we know that they were also really good astronomers, they were able to track the motion of the stars. They were able to predict precession of the equinoxes. They were able to, Basically, they were able to measure things. So they were good scientists as well, or it was the beginning of science. So they were no difference to us uh, in terms of their intellectual um, ability, no different to us at all. Of course, their technology was right. primitive, at least that's what I suspect. Uh, and this is probably where I would differ from maybe some other commentators, perhaps like Graham Hancock, who, who might suggest that uh, before the Younger Dryas period, there was perhaps some advanced civilization. Uh, and what he means by advanced, I'm not entirely sure, but um, certainly I agree that people were more advanced in terms of their astronomical ability than we give them credit, or has, they have been given credit for. But yeah, beyond right. that, 
Beyond that, I don't know. I don't, I don't think there's any more kind of technology than just being good astronomers. Well, there could be. Yeah, we just don't, I, I we, think we what, just don't yeah, have the I, evidence. I think what he means actually is just that, okay, so both Graham Hancock and Dr. Robert Schock's premise usually when they talk about these things is that some event, which Graham Hancock, obviously Randall Carlson, believe it's the Younger Dryas Impact event. Dr. Robert Schock has the, with uh, Dr. Uh, or, uh, yeah, Dr. Anthony Parrott, who's a plasma physicist or something like that, uh, came up with the idea that there was a coronal mass ejection instead of a, a, an impact that caused all these plasma storms all over the uh, the globe. And if you weren't getting into a cave system like Darren Kuyu or, you know, Anatolia region that, you, you know, or even Easter Island has different volcanic natural caves so that's what his basic theory is is having to do with that but with it, it, the advanced civilization thing comes is so after the impact humanity was shot back into this like primitive state almost like a dr shot calls it a solar induced dark age basically so um there was an event we lost everything and we had to really rebuild from scratch is pretty much i think they're, they're, what their premise is yeah, I mean, I agree with that. So clearly, we were knocked backwards. I could say, yeah. Um, but I don't think they think. I don't think either of them think that there was like flying spaceships or anything, anything <laughs> of that nature. I think it was just more about where we were before and how far it set us back from where we were before that happened. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you can see that in the archaeology. So Clovis culture uh, disappears in America, and and so the the people that um, follow on after that, they're their lithic, so their stoneworking is you know, more basic, or more primitive, you could say. So that's certainly true. Uh, in um, in the Near East, so in Europe or the Near East, just uh, to the east of Europe, we have the culture that I think built um, Gebekli Tepe, which is the Natufian. And so before the Younger Dryas period, there is this group of people that archaeologists have identified as early Natufian. And then after the Younger Dryas period, sorry, in, in the Younger Dryas period, so after the event, uh, they, they, archaeologists now call these people the late Natufian. So they're distinct groups. And that's because they, their lifestyle has completely changed. Um, they've, the early Natufian are thought to be uh, um, sedentary by and large. So they've, they've stopped being. Um, they stopped roaming the, the countryside. They've become a sedentary. They started to build houses, essentially, of a, of, a, of a kind. And they started to settle down. They've begun to experiment with agriculture. This is the early Natufian. And even at, um, there's a site called Tel Caramel, which has uh, been discovered in Syria, which is really interesting. They've even got archaeological evidence there for stone towers Stone towers. So this is at about the same time as Gebekli Tepe. So we wow. see, yeah. So we, we even see stoneworking skills that you can then kind of relate to. Okay, if they could do this, then maybe this, these people might have been able to do Gebekli Tepe. So I suspect they could. So we've got this transition on both sides of the Atlantic. There is this uh, change in culture, and each each time it's gone backwards a bit. Um, so that the the um, the late Natufian become less sedentary. They start wandering around more. 
they're they're more of a sort of typical view of hunter gatherers. Uh, before they before the um, the Neolithic revolution happens, they they settle down again. So yeah, mankind gets knocked backwards at that time for sure. But it's not just that's not the only time it's happened. I think uh, in my book I suggest there have been other events, uh, perhaps not as significant or not as uh, globally destructive as the Younger Dryas, but there's been, probably been other events since then that have also knocked humanity backwards. Each time civilization uh, takes a hit, we go back a few steps and we have to maybe not start from scratch, but we have to build up again, okay, because uh, there was, you know, all the infrastructure is basically gone. We're having to relearn many of the things that we used to know. So, <clears throat> yeah, it, it keeps on happening. And it it, ha it has this curious. Again. Yeah, absolutely. Again, that's something I say in the, in the book. It seems to have this cycle, which you can kind of match on to this 3,000 year cycle, which matches to the, um, the processional period of the Torrid meteor stream. And that's how we get into this. Um, the astronomical part of, of this story. So th this th basically what happens is that every 3,000 years, uh, Earth goes through this um, uh, sort of this risky period in time when uh, we intercept the Torrid meteor, or at least that sort of the core, the dense part of the Torrid meteor stream, and we're at risk from more of these collisions. Yeah, because that's got all the near-impact near, um, uh, um asteroids yeah um as far as uh when you when you look at this what do you think of like john anthony west um the sphinx being like you said like you think thirty thousand. that do you think that that's a possibility or do you think that's just way too far in the past yeah i sus <clears throat> i suspect i mean that's that's specifically specifically the um, Egyptian king lists, I think that uh, right. Anthony West was talking about. So there is one one of these king lists that goes really far back in time. Um, I think it's the Turin Papyrus, and yeah, I suspect that's all inflated by at least a factor of ten. So I I, I think it's uh, you, you, now this is such an ancient, such a difficult um, piece of text to piece sure. together, and. The people at that time possibly were making some of it up. We don't know. So I think you have to be very careful about taking that kind of timeline at face value. Well, I think it was there in is... correlation to the, the water erosion around the base of the Sphinx and how um, the, only, the last time that there would have been that much water in that region would have been that long ago. But I know Graham Hancock and Robert Baval's position is 10,500 years ago, uh, which would make you know, Leo facing the constellation, or the, uh, I'm sorry, the Sphinx facing the constellation of a Leo, and the three, you know, main stars of Orion's belt basically line up with the three, yeah, with the three uh, pyramids of Giza. Yeah. Okay. So there's, there's a lot there. I mean, I mentioned I, that the Sphinx forms one of the ch chapters of my book. So right. it's something that I've also got an idea about. And, um, uh, I'll start with the pyramids. I, I suspect the pyramids, the archaeologists have got the pyramids probably right. I suspect their timeline is about right. Um, I don't know about the, um, the, the Orion hypothesis. It might be true. It might not. 
it's it's i think it i think there's a good chance that it's correct um it's just that the evidence isn't strong enough so we can't really be it's not really convincing but what is that because i know tiwa tiwakan's got the same layout as well those the the three with the one offset um right what do you yeah. think that is do you think that's just in, well in, i mean it could be it could be uh representing orion's belt i mean I, it's entirely possible um i wouldn't i wouldn't dare to rule that out it's entirely possible perhaps even likely i think um given what I've been looking into uh, in terms of ancient Egypt more recently and how popular the constellation Orion was for the ancient Egyptians, that it's an entirely reasonable uh, hypothesis. It's just that in a scientific sense, if you want to be really confident about a hypothesis, then you need the, you need really good statistics. Sure. And the statistics aren't quite good enough for the uh, um, Orion hypothesis. I'm not saying it's wrong. It's just difficult to prove sure. scientifically. Um, but the Sphinx, right? So the, I think I think that um, Shock is probably right about the Sphinx, and that's because there is now there are now I would say three good lines of evidence that the Sphinx is older, much older than conventionally thought. So there's obviously there's Robert Shock's um, original. Um, weathering evidence and originally he said i think it was he estimated somewhere between 5000 and 7000 bc based mm -hmm. on the weathering and then after talking with or then about on on hearing graham hancock's idea i think it was or robert Bo Bo robert Beval, i think he extended his timeline timeline back to about 10000 bc as you say uh, my view is that he should have stuck where he was i think i think he was spot on with his 5,000 to 7,000 BC time uh, age. Uh, and that's because there's, there's now two more pieces of evidence that we need to consider. The first is, um, and actually Robert Schock mentions this in his, in his more recent book, The Origins of the Sphinx. Mm -hmm. So there has been some thermoluminescence uh, measurements performed on the Sphinx temple, or at least the Sphinx temple, which is next to the Sphinx, Right. Uh, it has, they used to build they, it from the blocks from around the base of it. Exactly. Yeah. So we, it's accepted, I think, even by the archaeologists that the Sphinx Temple sandstone and, uh, sorry, limestone and the um, the Sphinx limestone match up. So they're basically they were one sure. was quarried out of the Sphinx enclosure to make the Sphinx Temple. But the but the the, the limestone blocks of the Sphinx temple are covered with uh, granite facing blocks and the granite facing blocks have been weathering pattern of the limestone blocks so the, 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 the granite blocks uh, have to be the same age as when the limestone blocks were weathered already so they the, the limestone blocks must be significantly older sure. in other words than the granite blocks that are facing them. Now, the thermoluminescence measurements have been performed on the granite blocks, which are younger, and they come out to be about two and a half to 3,000 uh, BC. So that the granite blocks, which are much younger, are about the same age as the pyramids, roughly, or at least the, you know, the ancient uh, dynasty, the older dynasties of ancient Egypt. So that suggests that those limestone blocks are really, really old. 
much older you, than. So, do you believe in the uh, the idea of Zeptepi that there was this pre-dynastic um, civilization or version of Egypt before what we know as Egypt? I suspect that's probably right. Yeah, I think, uh, and again, this is something I talk about in the book, uh, and I've got a few more um, points on, on my blog. Um, I think. Uh, I think I'm able to actually date the Sphinx correctly, <laughs> so to speak, because uh, according to our zodiacal hypothesis, um, the lion or the, the feline, it could be a lion or a leopard, actually represents cancer. I know we think it's Leo. Right. We all think it's Leo. But if you go back, our zodiacal hypothesis, which fits at Chattel Hoyuk and it fits all of the um, European cave art, the lion represents cancer. So then if you look at, if you then, you know, we've got this massive history of about 35,000 years of astronomy, of um, measuring solstices and equinoxes and representing them in terms of animal symbols. And then we've got the Sphinx, this huge animal symbol built into the stone that has to be, um, has to be part of this system. It's not unrelated. It's not a coincidence, yeah. So then if we take the Sphinx is Cancer and not Leo, its date comes out to be around about six and a half to 7,000 BC, which is, agrees with, with Shock's original estimate based on the weathering. Sure. And that is now, I think, a lot more believable than a 10,000 BC, BC Sphinx, because at this time, six and a half to 7,000 BC, you've, civilization has begun. You've got places like Chattelhoyuk, which is a town in Turkey, with a population of around five to 6,000 people. You've got uh, Jericho um, in the Near East. So Jericho with its stone walls and stone towers. So that this kind of architecture, this kind of civilization is there. And the only thing we don't have is any evidence from the Nile Valley that there was a civilization at that time, apart from, of course, things like the Sphinx, which had been conventionally dated to be much younger. So I suspect that the Sphinx and a few other uh, constructions in ancient Egypt are actually about six and a half thousand BC and are related to these other, uh, this sort of explosion of civilization. So then you can ask, well, what happened? Why, what happened to the, the people along the Nile, living by the Nile around six and a half to 7,000 BC? Why do we not see any evidence for them? It's the Torrid Meteor stream again, I suggest, in the book. There is um, the, uh, the, the strongest climate event of the whole Holocene period, so that's the last 10,000 years. The strongest climate event is known as the 8.2 kilo year event, and this happened in 6,200 and something BC. And also that coincides with our passage through the Torrid Meteor stream or the core of the Torrid Meteor Stream. So I suspect that, much like we had the Younger Dryas event, there was another event, 6,200 BC, that wiped out, potentially, uh, this, this Zeptepi, this first ancient Egyptian civilization, who built the Sphinx and a few other structures. And, um, yeah, uh, but they were, they were wiped out. So we, we've completely uh, misinterpreted uh, the evidence, I think, in, in ancient Egypt. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, and there is some weird, obviously, you look at Gobekli Tepe, 
11,600 years old, and then you look at dynastic Egypt, let's just be generous and say 3000 BC. I think that's the first hieroglyphs or 3200 BC, something like that. Um, I mean, that's a big distance. Like we can fit a a couple of our civilizations at least in there. So um, what do you think? uh, Do you think that there was a possibly this dark age or do you think that we'll find out in the future that like you're saying that that's probably when Egypt was doing a majority of their stuff that they're known for in terms of not obviously the the dates that we can verify with the pharaohs and stuff like that but in terms of building structures and that kind of stuff uh no i suspect most of what we see in egypt is correctly attributed to the dynastic period that we know about but just not all of it i suspect there are some structures just a few structures perhaps uh, and maybe a lot more that are, are buried, still buried and hidden beneath the sand because um, a catastrophic event of this kind, if you've got a tsunami, a mega tsunami, which is bringing in loads of silt, it's going to cover everything up. Sure. <clears throat> so 